Sisters and brothers in Christ, grace and peace to you this day from God our Father and our Lord and Savior Jesus the Christ. Amen. So our text for today from the Gospel of Mark is one of those texts that we wrestle with. In our hearing it, it seems to lay out implications that are tough to deal with in our lives. Now you will either hear this text as affirmation or accusation, depending on your life experience. Now I'm not here today to try to soften this either. God's law and command are demanding. And the reality is, sinners don't like it. Sinners will always seek whatever alleviates the weight of the accusation of God's command. The subject and reality of divorce touches each and every one of us. And taken at face value, this teaching of Jesus often leaves many feeling convicted, maybe even in shame. It can create doubt, and yet for others is freeing. Considering all of this, I feel it's good for us to wrestle with texts like this. Now, I say that divorce touches everybody because unless you're a very small child or just are not completely aware, I am certain that there are people in every one of your lives that have been affected by a divorce, that have suffered the effects, rather directly or collaterally. And as we begin to wrestle with this, we really do need to remember, however, the context of marriage that Jesus and the Pharisees are speaking of. So in this text, we hear Jesus teaching about proper relationships, creation, marriage, sex, and divorce. All really fun things. Now what may be hard to hear is the intent of the teaching. It is easy for us to gloss over parts or either find our own sense of righteousness or not in this text. In hearing its accusation, as we as people in this world struggle with our relationships. This text often gets used as a weapon against others. I have sat with more than a few people in the midst of a broken relationship and heard this. So in order for us to understand what this reading is speaking to, I think we have to first understand what marriage meant in ancient culture. Biblical scholar and author Bruce Melina writes this, under normal circumstances in the world of Jesus, individuals didn't really get married. Families did. One family offered a male, the other a female. Their wedding stood for the wedding or joining of the larger extended families. And it symbolized the fusion of honor of both families involved. It would be undertaken with a focus on political or economic concerns. Marriage was not a matter of falling in love. It was very much a matter of honoring one's parents. Divorce then would entail the disillusion of these extended family ties. It represented a challenge to the family of the former wife and would likely result in family feuding. Ancient culture operated predominantly in an honor or shame system. Great emphasis was placed on the honor or shame people's actions placed on others, especially to their families. So when a divorce took place, entire families were dishonored. Yet in spite of this, divorce was common. It was a very simple process, much easier than it is today. 
Within the patriarchal culture of that time, women and children had no rights. A man could simply write on a piece of paper, she's not my wife, I am not her husband. And he could kick her out the door, and that was the end of it. A man could divorce his wife on a whim, but a woman could not. So in this text, we find Jesus facing this test. The Pharisees have come to try to publicly humiliate Jesus, to discredit him, or hopefully catch him in speaking some violation to the law of Torah. And they ask the question, is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife? Knowing full well what the answer was according to law. This was their job. But Jesus, always seeing this kind of thing coming, answers their question with a question. What did Moses command you? The Pharisees tell Jesus what Moses allowed. Now you can read this for yourself in Deuteronomy chapter 24. But you see, Moses never commanded anything. He allowed divorce. Jesus goes on to say divorce was allowed because of the hardness of human hearts. That is, because of human sinfulness and brokenness, and especially our disobedience to what God had intended. He then turns this conversation into another dynamic teaching moment, and he answers them by reasserting God's image for marriage, as we have heard today from Genesis chapter 2. Jesus goes on to tell God's intention for marriage. We humans were created to be in relationship with each other and with God and to trust God above all things. However, after the serpent in the garden plants doubt in the human conscience through the statement, did God say, well, the original relationship that God had intended was destroyed and along with it, our relationships as humankind. God's original intent in marriage was procreation, having babies, populating the world, the two becoming one in the form of a child. It was about people and families becoming stronger together. It was also about God's intention for two people to be faithful, lifelong companions in an intimate and committed relationship that should never be severed. Because this was good for the family, where the joy of raising children was shared by the family. It was also what was good for community, keeping order so that there was not discord in the population. But when divorce happens, we know the implications on family. We know that most of the biggest battles in a divorce usually concern the welfare of children. Now, there are many takeaways from this text, especially in our current time. We live in a world where over 50% of marriages ends in divorce. But as I stated before, we all know the ripple effects of this. Now, I know many of you would like me to stand here today and make a bold assertion about what is right and what is wrong in this text. So that you may find your own sense of righteousness or comfort in your own sense of political, legal, and cultural understandings. I'm not going to do that. Other than to say, Scripture speaks for itself. This particular passage has been used to keep and bind people in marriages and relationships that are so broken 
that immense pain and harm is imposed on individuals and entire family systems. But the God we have does not desire continued brokenness for anybody. He does not desire people to remain in abusive relationships, whether physical, emotional, or even spiritual. Sometimes the most loving action that one can take is to recognize the brokenness and to end it. You see, human love is often broken love. We're broken people. But in Jesus, we begin to hear and experience that there are no limits to the love of God. The most important aspect of knowing God in Jesus Christ is to know God is different from us and that God's love is also different than ours. It has no limits. We often try to apply our own understanding of relationships and love on God, but God is different, and God's love is different. God's love has no limits. Jesus continually shows the grace and mercy of God, and it is limitless. He shows us a love that is disruptive and revolutionary to our own sense of understanding it. God's love will always broaden our thinking and our understanding and the way we live in relationships with each other. Now at this point in Mark's gospel, we have heard the way that God is going to love us most. Jesus has already said this twice, that he's on his way to death on the cross. And in this teaching moment, as Jesus has set his sights on the cross, he once again has set the bar rather high. Or maybe low, as you might consider it. He tells the disciples at the end of our text that we need to receive God's kingdom, that is God's promise, God's truth of forgiveness. We need to receive his mercy that breaks into our brokenness as a little child. Now this is very hard for us that have attained the years to start questioning the whys of life. But we especially get to witness this, I say often, when we see our children come up for the children's message or when we get to teach in Scripture first. You get to see simple faith take something in and trust in it. But in reality, we never get relationships right. But God has already made it right. God's desire for you is to live in loving relationships and community, to intercede for each other, even holding each other accountable, watching each other's backs and not tearing each other down. God desires you to know his immense love, compassion, and mercy for you. And he encourages you to provide the needs for the little ones, whether they be children or the poor, the mentally ill, the sick, the abused, those in prison, and yes, the divorced. Any who are considered other than or least of these. We're called to share who we are and what we have, our time, talents, and treasures to care for each other, to ensure the preaching of the gospel of Jesus Christ, and to continue to build up the body of Christ. Jesus calls us to be faithful. In so many ways, we fail to love because we are broken people. But God loves us limited human beings in a limitless and divine way. 
Because when we fail, God forgives and forgives and forgives and loves us as we are. Now, today's good news is you do not have to find yourself on the right side of this text. In spite of it all, all of our failures and limits and all of our getting it right and limitless breath, God's love for you is limitless and he is always faithful. He tells you this in baptism. We got to witness this. He reminds you of this each time you receive his body and blood. Your relationship with God has been redeemed in his son and it is right. And as you come and gather and hear God's word in Jesus Christ, let it speak a hope-filled existence into being, one that grants you new and abundant life. Thanks be to God. Amen.